Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dwyer and this episode is about the story of the Norman conquest of Connacht. During the high summer of 1235, the west of Ireland witnessed one of the most violent chapters in its history, which culminated in the storming of an island fortress on the River Shannon, using siege engines on floating platforms and fire ships. This assault was one of the key battles in the Norman conquest of Connacht the province situated west of the River Shannon. This story, however, has far more than just the details of this fascinating invasion. It was also entwined with one of the most vicious family disputes in Irish history when three generations of the same family vied for the kingship of Connacht, all willing to use whatever means necessary in their struggle for victory. With this story of warfare and intrigue ahead of us, let's begin. We often hear how the contemporary world and our lives have been changed so much by technology. However, we're not the only ones to live through such times of great change. Our ancestors in Ireland in the closing decades of the 12th century experienced what was possibly a period of even greater change. Imagine just for a second what it was like to live through a period where you, your friends and many people you know, have to flee your homes, seeking sanctuary in mountains or bogs, to escape the wrath of a brutal, invading army. In these mountains you try to eke out an existence, while back in the lands where you once lived, the conquerors import thousands of settlers, who take your ancestral lands. If you do choose to return, you will in all likelihood become a semi-slave, you will find your home utterly transformed by the conquerors in every way imaginable. Many of the people living there will speak different languages which you don't understand. Dozens of towns will spring up where once there had been green fields containing enormous buildings like cathedrals, the like of which you have never seen before. In short, your world would not just be changed, it would be destroyed. 
This phenomenal change I'm talking about is not just imaginary. In the south and east of Ireland in the 12th century, Gaelic Irish people experienced exactly this when the Anglo-Normans invaded the island. Between 1170 and 1200, the Gaelic kingdoms of Leinster, Munster and East Ulster were conquered, dismembered and resettled in this fashion. There were some kingdoms that were not conquered, surviving more or less intact into the 13th century. These were the Kingdom of the O'Neills in mid and western Ulster and the Kingdom of Connacht, west of the Shannon. It had been from Connacht, ruled by the O'Connor dynasty, where much of the land was poor, being boggy or mountainous, that the most effective resistance to the Norman invasion had originated. Indeed, the King of Connacht, Rory O'Connor, had nearly defeated the invaders before they'd ever got going, when his armies had trapped the Normans in the siege of Dublin in the summer of 1170. Seeming on the verge of defeat, the starved Normans literally pulled victory from the jaws of defeat in a last gasp desperate raid from the beleaguered city where they caught the Gaelic Irish off guard. Although he failed to stem the invasion, Rory managed to hold his own in the following decade. As the Normans tried to conquer more territory, Rory protected his kingdom of Connacht from conquest. In the 12th century, which was a world where nationalism did not exist, this was a primary objective, protecting his family's kingdom. So in all regards, Rory was relatively successful. For the people of Connacht, this meant that they were saved the horrendous upheaval endured elsewhere in Ireland. However, in 1183, their hopes of a stable future, free from upheaval, took a decisively bleak turn. By the 1180s, Rory O'Connor, the King of Connacht, who had successfully defended his kingdom, was approaching his 60s, a grand old age by medieval standards. His mind began to focus on what would happen in Connacht after he had died. Rory had lived through exceptional times and had steered the Kingdom of Connacht through what had been a very difficult period after the Norman invasion, and now he wanted to ensure that this would continue after his death. The main problem for Rory was succession. In Gaelic Ireland, it wasn't just the son of the king who had the right to succeed his father, but indeed any male of the extended ruling family was eligible, a situation that often created violent conflict between cousins and siblings alike. With the predatory Norman Lord of Meath, Hugh de Lacey, as a neighbour after the conquest, Connacht could not afford to be weakened by internal strife like this. In an effort to ensure a seamless transition, Rory decided that he would abdicate his throne in 1183 in favour of his son Connor. The idea that this would ensure peace, however, was wishful thinking. With many others feeling they were the rightful rulers of the West, this triggered a brutal and ferocious conflict known as the War of the Redoina, meaning the War of Those Eligible for Kingship. It was called this because it not only involved Rory's other sons, but his brother Cahill and even his grandnephews, who were all eligible and all wanted power. Even Rory himself would come out of retirement to make a play for power. The depths of how vicious this struggle would become was illustrated clearly in the year 1189. That year, Connor. Rory's designated heir was assassinated by his foster brother 
who in turn was assassinated by Connor's son. As this fratricidal war shed blood the length and breadth of Connacht, the Normans, who had now conquered the medieval kingdoms of Munster, Leinster, Meath and East Ulster, now gathered like vultures over what appeared to be the mortally wounded corpse of the kingdom of Connacht. The Normans were just waiting for a chance to swoop. By 1188 they were already intervening in the civil war by supporting one side or another which suited their interests. This had seen a large-scale raid by Hugh de Lacy the Younger in 1188. This was followed up by other raids and interventions by William de Burgh and John de Courcy between 1200 and 1202. While this was not conquest, it was clear it was not far off. The shadow of change and violent transformation that had swept across the east and south of Ireland crept closer and closer to Connacht as the civil war went on year after year and the kingdom was weakened further, becoming more and more vulnerable. It was clear that the Normans were thinking about invasion. In the 1190s and then again in 1215, King John of Robin Hood infamy granted the entire kingdom of Connacht to the Anglo-Norman family, the de Burghs. But this was more aspirational than anything. Twice John granted Connacht to the de Burghs, but crucially, on both occasions, he stopped short of ratifying the grant. So while conquest loomed, it never happened. It appears that the Normans were never entirely sure what was more in their interests in Connacht, an out-and-out invasion or some system of tribute while leaving the Gaelic kings in control. So despite these grants with stayed executions and the fact that the O'Connors were doing a fine job destroying Connacht themselves, the kingdom managed to avoid direct Norman conquest. By the early 13th century, it seemed the initial threat of invasion was staved off as a man called Cahal Chrodurg O'Connor, the brother of Rory, finally emerged as victor in the civil wars. Cahal was a shrewd politician and he stabilised the situation when he accepted vassal status from King John, which effectively made him kind of like a Norman Earl of the province. While this was a demotion of sorts, it now gave him protection because if any Norman attacked Connacht, they would be defying a royal decree. However, dealing with the Normans always came at a price, and Cahal, as vassal, now only held his lands on the promise of good behaviour, a good behaviour that would be determined by the king and his officials. This made Cahal completely dependent on the whims of the Norman king. All the while, the grants of Connacht that had been made to the de Burgh family back in the 1190s and again in 1215 lay gathering dust. However, if Cahal Crowderg, the king of Connacht, or indeed his heirs, put one foot wrong, there was no question that the de Burghs, led now by the ambitious Richard de Burgh, would press to have Connacht confiscated from Cahal and handed over to them. While Cahal had stabilised the region, he could not live forever, and when he died in 1224, a new round of, albeit predictable, violence broke out between the various factions of the O'Connor family. While Cahal's son A managed to take hold of the poisoned chalice that was the kingship of Connacht, he could not maintain control and faced much opposition from members of his own family. Internally divided again, Connacht 
now had an uncertain future ahead of it. But things went from bad to worse when events far away in England transformed the future of the lives of thousands of people in Connacht. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. In 1223, the fate of Connacht was sealed far from the west of Ireland, when the Earl of Kent, Hubert de Burg, an uncle of the Richard who had been granted Connacht, became the most influential noble in England at the time. While such court manoeuvres might have seemed a world away from the hills and mountains of the west of Ireland, these changes had immense consequences. Having attained the confidence of the new king, Henry III, Hubert began to push for the grant of Connacht to his nephew, to be dusted down and enacted. Although the grant had been made many years earlier, the de Burgs had always enviously eyed the lands of Connacht in the west of Ireland, and now, through the influence of Hubert de Burgh, the conquest of Connacht that had eluded them for so long was finally within their reach. In the mid-1220s, things began to move quickly. In 1226, A. O'Connor, the King of Connacht, found himself summoned to Dublin to surrender his lands to the justiciar, amid claims he, and indeed his father, Cahal Crowderg, had rebelled against the English king. It was now that Cahal Crowderg's decision to accept vassal status from the Norman kings was coming back to haunt his son. If it was proved that Cahal, or indeed A, had rebelled, Connacht would be declared forfeit and handed over to the de Burgs. Indeed, it appeared in 1226 that A was going to Dublin to face what would be a show trial. The writing was on the wall for the entire population of Connacht. A. O'Connor, however, had no intention of just handing over this land. His family had ruled the West for centuries, long before any Norman ever set foot in Ireland, or England for that matter, and they would not give up easily. A. refused to go to Dublin when summoned to hand over his lands and instead forced an alternative meeting at that lone castle, just on the frontier of Connacht. Now this seemed kind of clever. He was making the king's negotiators come close to his power. However, then A chose what can only be described as a nuclear option. When the royal officials arrived at that lone, A attacked them, killed several, burned the castle and sacked the town. There was no question now that A was in rebellion. He had attacked and killed royal officials. 
and the lands in Connacht in the eyes of the Normans were forfeit and conquest by the de Burgs would be unleashed. The de Burgs themselves could not have wished for more and by May 1227 the grant of Connacht was finally enacted. The lands were declared forfeit and legally now the de Burgs could do as they pleased. At the start their transformation of their new lands in the west was a slow affair. In the first few years de Burgh faced little opposition and progressed bit by bit, erecting castles, planning new farms and settlements. At the same time, he constantly meddled in the affairs of the O'Connors as they tried to select a new king after A. O'Connor was assassinated in 1227. By 1231, Gaelic society in the west of Ireland appeared to be on borrowed time. When Richard de Burgh had imprisoned Phelan O'Connor, the latest person to take up that most difficult of jobs in medieval Ireland, the kingship of Connacht. Slowly but surely, a change was coming over the landscape. Stone castles now towered over the west. However, with their necks literally on the execution block, the Gaelic Irish of the west now received a last-minute reprieve from the most unlikely of places. It was around this time that Henry III, the Norman king, was just ending a disastrous invasion of France. Henry needed a fall guy, and luckily for the people of Connacht, Richard de Burgh's uncle, Hubert, was the victim. Soon, Henry, trying to prove a point, was doing everything he could to undermine the de Burghs, and in Ireland, the most effective way to do this was to stop the settlement of Connacht and order the release of Phelan O'Connor, who had been imprisoned by Richard de Burgh. Once freed, Phelan predictably went on the warpath in Connacht against the out-of-favour de Burghs, and soon the Norman presence in the region, which Richard had built bit by bit, was decimated. Phelan pulled down castles and burned settlements. The people of Connacht appeared to have received an 11th hour reprieve. However, royal favour at the court of Henry III was a bit like a yo-yo, and in 1234 Richard de Burgh was back in favour after he had remained loyal to the king when other barons had threatened revolt. Unfortunately for Phelan and the people of Connacht, de Burgh was rewarded by having the grant of Connacht reenacted. This time, Richard de Burgh would not settle his new lands slowly. What followed next was the medieval equivalent to shock and awe. There would be no reprieve, no way back. The settlement this time would happen. In 1235, Richard de Burgh assembled a major army and led them across the Shannon at Athlone into Connacht. This force would show absolutely no mercy. Not only were they conquering the province, but they were going to destroy anything that lay in their path. They began by attacking north along the Shannon into modern Roscommon, raiding lands until they arrived at the monastery of Boyle. If anyone had any doubts what to expect from this force during the conquest of the West, De Burgh's troops set them straight at Boyle when they ran amok on the monastery. According to the annals, they broke open the crypt and took away its valuables, chalices and vestments. However, for De Burgh, this was not the start he wanted. It was not the violence he necessarily minded, but a man who was soon to be Lord of Connacht did not want to be known as a defiler of monasteries. So the soldiers were forced to return the stolen items and the monastery was reimbursed for the damage. This was one of the last shreds of humanity that would be seen in Connacht. 
that summer. After this, the army turned south, racing through Connacht, pushing all the way into the neighbouring kingdom of Thomond, where they took the chance to take vengeance on the ruling O'Brien family, who had recently formed an alliance with Phelan O'Connor. Having faced no opposition since crossing the Shannon, it was now that Phelan, the King of Connacht, decided to strike against the Burg. Joining with what O'Brien's he could rally, they gave battle, but this Gaelic force was no match for the Norman heavy cavalry that literally shook the ground. The defence of Connacht lay in tatters, and now de Burg pushed deep into the west of the province, sweeping through modern County Galway. The Gaelic aristocrats of Connacht now began to surrender, one after another, in an effort to keep their lands intact. Indeed, it was not until this marauding force reached modern County Mayo that they finally met more resistance on the shores of Clue Bay on the Atlantic Ocean. Ferocious fighting took place across the islands of the bay, with the Normans only emerging victorious when they received naval support. After this, they turned back east towards Roscommon, to complete what was a major circuit of Connacht. By this stage, Balaam had abandoned the province, fleeing into Ulster, but a large number of his soldiers and allies had gathered on an island fortress in Loch Key on the Shannon River in County Roscommon. It was here that they were to make a last stand, and Richard de Burgh knew he had to reduce this fortress to finish the conquest. He could not leave a potential resistance force holding out. However, attacking the garrison on Loch Key was by no means easy. The fortress was situated on Castle Island and was protected by over 200 metres of water between the island and the shore. De Burgh, however, was not put off. He brought ships up the Shannon which supported platforms for archers, while he also built a large raft to carry a perrier, which was a large catapult not unlike a trebuchet. Soon the island's fortress was being bombarded with arrows and missiles. On the island, this must have really rattled the defenders. The entire fort was made from earth and wood. Stone missiles would have crashed through whatever they hit, walls, roofs, even people. Despite this onslaught, the garrison did not relent. But de Berg himself was equally stubborn, and he just decided he would up the ante. His soldiers built another raft. However, this one they piled high with flammable material. After setting the entire thing alight, a fortified ship towed the burning raft towards the island fortress. Unable to damage the fortified tow ship, the defenders now faced being burned alive once the fire ship reached the island. The fortress, made largely of wood, would have gone up so easily. On an island which is scarcely 50 metres in diameter, the defenders had nowhere to retreat to. Facing a horrific death, there was only one option. Surrender. And as the fire ship drifted towards the island fortress, the last major holdout in Connacht surrendered to Richard de Burgh. With this surrender, the once powerful kingdom of Connacht had been vanquished. The speed at which Richard de Burgh had in the end brought down one of the greatest kingdoms of medieval Ireland was startling. While they had shadow boxed around the province for decades, ultimately the Normans had been able to deliver a knockout blow in one campaign in 1235. 
while the defeats in the summer of 1235 were bad, worse was to follow in the coming years, as the dispossession of land accompanied by the usual economic and social transformation that we saw at the start of the show began in Connacht. In 1236, Richard de Burgh erected a family castle at Loch Ray, which became the new centre of military and political power in the region. In the following years, Connacht was carved up and handed over to the major Norman families who had participated in the invasion, including the de Lacys, the Birminghams and Barretts. In the south of modern County Galway, the region was absolutely transformed. While it might not have been developed as much as regions like the Barrow Valley, in the east, the impact was still sizeable. Towns like Portumna, Athenry, Clare Galway and most famously Galway City were established. Norman agricultural practices were introduced along with Norman law. The picture in other areas of Connacht was not so successful. In the more isolated, remote northwest of Mayo, in Eris and Tirali, the Barretts were never able to transform society and at best became merely military overlords of the Gaelic Irish in the region. In the decades following the invasion, Norman power in the West grew from strength to strength, reaching its zenith under the rule of the de Burgh cousins Richard and William Leah de Burgh in the early 14th century. Over time, the Norman settlers were influenced by the Gaelic society around them. Indeed, eventually, they would speak Gaelic Irish, adopt Gaelic Irish customs, and despite the fact their ancestors had fought so hard to undermine Gaelic society, they became, as the saying goes, more Irish than the Irish themselves. If you have any thoughts on today's show, I would love to hear them. So send them to history at irishhistorypodcast.ie. Until next time, Sloan. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.